Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. We'll get this show on the road. Here we go now. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today, folks, is Carrie Siggins, the CEO of Stone Age Tools. Carrie, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Now, Carrie, Real Leaders Podcast, we want to be real. We want to talk about leadership. But first, we want to know what led you to Stone Age Tools. <sighs> Do you want the like the like the down and dirty version or like the I want know? the down and dirty real version <laughs> Durango, Colorado. All right. So uh what actually led me to uh to Stone Age uh was a was very happenstance. I actually um had a drug overdose in 2006. I was living in Austin, Texas, and um on a very successful career path in operations management and uh, and some sales. And I was living this dual life with addiction and it all came crashing down on Labor Day of 2006. Mm. And I nursed myself through it. I was far too ashamed to call anyone and ask for help. I thought if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die alone. If I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna make it alone. And I nursed myself through it um, and as I, as I laid in bed for three days, because I couldn't get out of bed for three days, uh, I couldn't go to work. That was the, the moment when I realized I have to change my life. I have always determined my success. I've always determined my self self-worth by working hard, no matter what state of mind I was in. I always went to work. And when I couldn't go to work for three days, I said, that's it. I, I have to change my life. This is not what success looks like. Uh, you're going to choose to live or choose to die. So I called my mother who lived in Durango. Um, I grew up in Colorado and I told her everything and she said, come home. So a few weeks later, I had put all my things in storage and I was driving a thousand miles, exactly a thousand miles from my, my apartment in Austin to my mom's house here in Durango. And I just turned 28 and the whole time I was going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do when I get there? You know, Durango is an amazing place to live, but there's not a lot of great jobs here. And, but I knew in my heart, I needed to be home. So when I got here, I was working on cleaning myself up and, uh, looking for, for work and stone age had, uh, an ad for a general manager in the newspaper because that's how you got jobs uh, in a small rural town is through a newspaper. And so I applied for it, even though I was underqualified for it. And I thought, even if I don't get the job, maybe I'll, uh, you know, get my foot in the door for another position. And the founders saw something in me and decided to hire me to take over their company. And that was in January of 2007. So it's been 15 really fun, exciting, challenging years. Incredible. Congratulations. And what a turnaround. I mean, that's, yeah. 
an inspiring story, uh, to say the least. And thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, yeah. Now, do you mind if, if we talk a little bit more about that? Um, you know, for, for those listening out there, I mean, entrepreneurs, CEOs, it's one of the most lonely positions yeah. uh, you can be in, in the world. And that not that many people can relate to what, I don't want to say what caused, but what kind of led you down that path to get that far down, mm-hmm. knowing someone that has um, very close to me that is still recovering at it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it stems from one, my personality, my personality is very much, uh, a, I'm an achiever. I, I'm in the study, the Enneagram now, it's actually something that really helped me understand myself. Hmm. Uh, and so I'm a high achiever. And so I push myself very hard and I like to push boundaries. And so I, part of it was just me. And then part of it is, um, because I had this need to be recognized, this need to achieve, um, I had a tumultuous relationship with my father who left when I was really young. So I was always trying to mm. be seen by him. Um, sure. when I decided to go to engineering school, you know, I was told that I wasn't smart enough to make it to engineering school. So I felt like I always had to prove myself and always had to be what I think other people needed me to be. So this dual kind of track of feeling rejected, feeling like I wasn't good enough, feeling like I was imposter fed with my personality who very much wanted to be seen as successful, smart, and talented, um, drove me to making some really bad decisions. Of course, I didn't understand that about myself in my twenties when all of this was taking place. I have a deep understanding about it now. I I do a lot of self-study so I can understand this, but I think it was those two things combined. I think, you know, if I didn't have that type of personality, maybe I wouldn't have gone down that path with that feeling of rejection and not being seen. Um, So I don't certainly blame it on, you know, anybody else. It was a hundred percent me, but I do understand that that constant need to, um, to be, felt to, to be approved of, I think really drove me to a lot of these things before understanding where it was coming from. Sure. Sure. That's a lot of pressure, you know, and that can, yeah. that can definitely weigh on you. Uh, and very common as well with the father figure, uh, definitely in my family for sure. And that, that's really kind of the, the crux of what goes on. Now, knowing that a lot of things off the court can affect your on court performance, what have you found helpful uh, for you personally? I know you've talked about a lot of psychology tests. Help people out there listening to this. What has helped you personally? Yeah, for sure. Understanding myself. I think everybody needs to understand themselves. Uh, Some people don't believe in the personality assessments. Uh, I particularly like them because it gives me insight that I might not have otherwise had about myself and about other people. So for me, it really worked uh, because I could understand what my triggers were and I could see, oh, that's why I make those types of decisions. And it was empowering because instead of being left to like, well, I don't know why I do the things that I do. I started to have the tools and the words and the understanding about those triggers and, and about the, the reasons why I I showed up the way that I did. So that's really helpful for me, you know, whether that makes sense for you or not going down the assessment route. That's how I started. Self-study is such an important thing. Self-awareness, understanding why you show up the way you do understanding the impact that you have on other people, I think is such an important trait for leaders to have. Uh, because you've got to be able to understand yourself to modify your behaviors in certain situations. You need to understand other people so that you can say, okay, this is going to work. This isn't going to work in my communication style or my decision-making process. So I think that's been a big piece of it is really going down. I don't know, sometimes even a rabbit hole with self-awareness so that I could have some very deep understanding. And then um, working with a coach also helped that. I started working with a life coach 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And I think having someone there to support me during this self-discovery and hold me accountable and help me see some things that I might not have seen uh, was also really an important thing. So I'm a big believer in self-awareness and I'm a big believer in working with coaches. And it's interesting that your podcast is reflect forward. I mean, what a unique situation and blessing that it was that you went back to Durango, Colorado with blue collar workers who can really relate to 
you know, the scars that you've had to overcome in your life. What a unique situation that you're in reflecting upon this, Carrie. Is it something that is just hard to understand or or, or does it happen for a reason for you? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I believe, I don't believe necessarily everything happens for a reason, but I think that you can find meaning and purpose and direction and learning in everything that does happen. So for me, I have zero regrets. I have, uh, I do have, I've let go of some shame that I had towards myself. And of course I've hurt other people on my journey, but in the whole scheme of things, I would not be where I'm sitting today if I wouldn't have gone down that path. I understand the dark side of humanity. I understand the messiness of life. I understand that good people do bad things. I understand that bad people have redeeming qualities. And I am so grateful for that because it makes, I can relate to people. I understand what they're going through. And I think a lot of leaders who may not have those types of same hardships that, that I've gone through might feel that disconnect when they have an employee who's really struggling and they've never been through something like that to be able to have empathy for them. So I, I don't have any regrets. I do regret hurting people. And I've gone back and apologized to, to everyone who I've been able to get in touch with and energetically apologize to those who I haven't been able to, but in terms of like my own situation, zero regrets. Right. And I think that's, that's what's like the first step, right? Forgiving yourself before forgiving yeah. others. And, you know, for, for someone like yourself in, in the Reelers podcast alone, you know, we talk a lot about radical transparency, you know, everyone wants a little person with a little dark side every now and then, you know, tell me how you actually feel, how you actually are. How do you use that transparency with, with the employees that you serve? Yeah, I think radical transparency is so required, especially this day and age when people are feeling so disconnected from their leaders, from their companies, from their purpose at work. And so, um, I, my, my radical transparency has come through my, my leadership journey. 15 years ago, there was no way I was telling this story. I was filled with shame and I thought everybody would judge me. Like, how did she become a CEO with a drug problem like that? Uh, and so it was, I was very much keeping that inside. And then as I started to share my story and realize that people want to connect with, with the truth and they want to connect with who you really are as a person, I started to see, Hey, everybody just wants this in, in, in their work, work relationships. Anyway, they just want transparency. So if it's safe enough to tell somebody, Hey, yes, you know, I used to have a drug addiction to then it can, you can be transparent enough to say, Hey, this is the problem that we're facing as a company. And here's the financial situation of the company. We're going to be open books. So I just have learned that there's so much connection and power that happens when you're communicating openly and honestly with people, whether it's about yourself or whether it's about your company, your team, you know, your decisions that is very much woven into everything that I do as a leader. And, and like, you know, that's what they say about cuts, right? They turn the scars and scars show a lot of experience. Um, what are some of the cuts that you've learned throughout your role as a CEO in, the, in this organization? Oh God, so many. I mean, so taking over a company when you're 28, recovering from addiction and, uh, and have no experience running a company, like you make a ton of mistakes. <laughs> and I think the biggest ones that I've made are moving too fast without a plan. I definitely like ideas. I'm an ideation person and I like to drive the company forward, just like I like to drive myself forward and without a good plan and without everybody being on board, you can take on too much and you can't actually achieve what you set out to achieve. And I definitely made mistakes, especially early in my career about being too ambitious in our plans and not having the infrastructure and plan in place to make it happen. And we are an unbelievable company and we persevered through brute force effort but that doesn't feel good for anybody. And so that's one that cut deep because not only did it, not only did we not achieve what we set out to achieve as fast as I had wanted to achieve it, I didn't, I didn't 
build relationships along the way. I didn't bring people along um, the way. And, and I certainly put way too much pressure on people to get things done in an unrealistic time frame. Mm-hmm. So that's been a huge learning lesson. And I have to deal with it all the time because I see the future. I see like, this is where we need to go and this is what needs to be done. But there's a million steps that need to, that we need to take to get there. And I don't want to push my team, you know, over the brink because of those, of that, that ambitious vision. You know, we have to have a methodical plan that just chunks things off one step at a time, right? The 20 mile March. And so um, I, I, I tell that story because it's something that I still battle within myself all the time. And, and tell us about the 20 mile March. Is this the, the March to the South pole that you're yes. referring to? Okay. Yes. Tell, bring our listeners in a little bit about this mindset of this 20 mile March. Yeah. So it's in good to great. Uh, and I love it because so it, uh, so the story goes that there's two, uh, two explorers who leave one leaves Finland, one leaves uh, the UK at the same time. And they get to the South pole. And then, you know, the guy from the, from the UK really wants to be the first one. And he gets there, the Finnish company, the Norwegian, it was actually Norwegians, um, had already been, and were on their way back. And the, the British got stuck in a storm and they all wound up perishing because they couldn't keep their plan. And the way that the two different explorer expeditions went about it uh, was very different. The British, the, the, the British exploration team pushed as far as they can on sunny days, we're going to go hundred miles. And then that way, if it's a snowy day and we can only make it five, that's okay. So it was just push as hard as you can. And then that's how we're going to make it up. But the Norwegians, they just did 20 miles every single day. And that was it. Even if it was sunny and they could have gone hundred, they just went 20. And then that way they were rested and replenished. And so the whole idea around the 20 mile March is to be very disciplined in taking in what you do. And so you're going to just go this March. And even if you can go further, be disciplined enough to not do that. If you're not making it, be disciplined to still make that 20 mile March. And we, we use that within it, within stone age. Um, we have a 20 mile March. We have a smack recipe that comes out of it. We call it the recipe for success, but it's very much to keep us disciplined. And I put that into place specifically to keep myself disciplined. (laughs) I love it. And you know, it's just pure grit. It's consistency. And, And you know, your, learning experience around managing expectations. What are a few hacks that you've learned through this process to motivate your team to keep pushing ahead 20 miles a day? Yeah, expectations, that's such a powerful word. Um, So having a clear vision is absolutely the most imperative thing. I spend a significant amount of time on vision. So just, two days ago, I was on an airplane and I'm working towards, you know, doubling every four years and what that looks like to get to a billion dollar valuation and building out that roadmap and, uh, and then sharing that with my team. And I, I just pitched it to my team members of, of, of where we need to focus. And it's like, Oh, I get it. I see it constantly iterating that vision is so important for setting expectations because then you're going to have to make trade-offs, right? So, okay, we're going to put resources in this area and not in this area. And this is why, and this is how we're going to measure success. And this is how we're going to handle it when we have setbacks and having those really clear expectations tied to something that's really important, like the future of your company, I think helps with keeping people motivated, keeping people focused. And also it helps when you have to have the hard conversation about trade-offs, right? So this is where we expected to be. This is where we want to be, but something happened and we're not going to be able to do that. Let's talk about the trade-offs and set those really clear expectations so that we still are targeting our most important activities to achieve that vision. So I always start with the big picture to set expectations. And I think it's really helpful for people to see the big picture and how they fit into it. And that keeps them motivated even when things get tough. And and someone listening to this right now is like, wow, this is an inspiring story. But what does this company do? Who is Stone Age Tools? Oh, we are such a unique little company. So we manufacture 
high pressure water blasting tools and robotic equipment for industrial cleaning applications. So basically squirt guns on steroids. Um, our products are used anywhere you would use ultra high pressure water to clean. It's not your pressure washer that you use at your house. Uh, this is much, much higher pressure and in cleaning uh, industrial facilities. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of context, the water coming out of a car wash nozzle is about 700 PSI enough to remove dirt, but not paint. Our tools start at 2,500 PSI and go to 40,000. And so it's incredibly dangerous. It's chop your foot off, right? I mean, oh yeah. Yeah. And people have, um, yeah, very, I'm very sure. dangerous. And actually part of the reason, um, why we've been moving more and more into robotics is because of the safety, uh, the safety incidents that happen. People, people die from water jetting accidents all the time. And, and water jetting is, is it accounts for about 80% of the cleaning done in industrial facilities. So it, no one knows about it, but it's really important. Every single thing that you use, the tires on your car, the plastic in your mouth, mouse, the, the, the product, the, the pieces in your iPhone, the silverware that you eat off of, all of that's coming from industrial facilities. And those all have to be cleaned to be able to continue to produce. So mm. there's not a major industrial facility in the world that a Stone Age product isn't in. Wow. So that's, that's our core business. Um, we're moving more and more into technology. We, we have a product, uh, an IOT product development company, internet of things, uh, we just bought a software platform in the IOT space and we're, we definitely have, uh, a pretty aggressive organic and, uh, and growth through acquisition strategy that we're putting into place over the next several years to continue to build upon our core, but also diversify, take our technology into other markets. I noticed the acquisition. Tell me about your plans and, um, expectations for this change when you acquire an organization that's may, may have a different culture yeah. uh certainly they have a different business model um you know what are you expecting and what is your theory of change yeah so a lot of people don't understand why we bought a an iot product development company especially it's so outside of what we do and and the way that i look at 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 growth and how all of this fits in is really all again tied back to the vision so at Stone Age, we want to be a solutions as a service company, and we know we want to diversify. Well, to be solutions as a service, uh, a solutions as a service company, you're going to have to bring technology in. You're going to have to have subscription services. You're going to have to um, have you know other opportunities to to create recurring revenue sources that you can then bundle and package together for your clients. Well, that's very different than a widget sale, which is what Stone Age has historically done. We're selling, uh, we're selling equipment. And so to be able to execute this strategy, I've got to um, either do it, you know, by building it ourselves or by acquiring companies, uh, teams that are going to be able to help us achieve that. So part of our strategy at Stone Age is to, to, to build connected devices. So you're collecting data on how this equipment's being cleaned. And so you have to have IOT. So that was the next step. So I'm, I'm really looking at the, our acquisition strategy being based on technology and how it's going to advance us to our, our vision. Now the culture piece is really important. Um, I put a lot of time into culture. I've absolutely passed on smart strategic, um, investments or acquisitions from a technology perspective, because the cultures were just not going to mesh. Stone Age is an employee-owned company, so we have a pretty unique culture around here, and I'm not going to grow for the sake of growing and risk ruining or losing something magical that we have here. And, and, and where does that uh, thinking start? Does it start at the letter of intent? Does it, what, what is, where does it start in that acquisition process before you acquire an organization? What are you looking at specifically? Um, I'm looking at how they're going to help us with the vision. So what kind of technology, what kind of people do they bring? Is it, is it going to help us geographically? And I have lots and lots of conversations before we ever get to the LOI. Uh, I want to make sure that the expectations are, are clear, that we understand what they're about. They understand what we're about the exiting company, whether it's founders or whether it's, uh, you know, it's whether it's just executive management, what does all that look like? What do both parties want? I'm just such a believer in trying to make a deal work for everybody. I've done one acquisition that was just brutal and 
because there wasn't alignment with what we wanted and what the founders exiting wanted. Mm. And I just said, I'm never going to do that again. It's just too painful. And it doesn't leave people feeling positive about what's going on. And that's not how I want it to be. I don't want it to be hostile or, you know, we're just, the goals are really misaligned. So we spend a lot of time talking up front. So one, how does it fit into the overall strategy, but two, you know, what do people want and how are the, how are the teams going to meld and fit together? And if it's not a good cultural fit for the team, then I just don't see that it makes sense with what we do. Understandable. Yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned your organization is an employee owned organization. Let's just start there. I was really looking forward to getting a lesson on employee ownership. Now, Explain what employee ownership is and what the difference is between employee ownership and an ESOP. Okay. All right. So employee ownership is pretty self-explanatory. It's employees own um, some or all of the company. And there are several different mechanisms to be employee owned. Um, an ESOP, which stands for Employee Stock Ownership Program, uh, that, I'm sorry, Employee Stock Ownership Plan, uh, that is one method, but there's co-ops, you know, employees can buy stock in the company, even companies that offer stock options um, as part of incentive plans, like all the tech companies, you know, that is a form of employee ownership. Now that's a little bit different than what we do here uh, at Stone Age through the ESOP, but, you know, overall, it's just really about how employees are able to share in the success of the company through some sort of equity program. So that's in general what, what it is. Um, and ESOP is a pretty unique form of employee ownership. And it's, uh, it's basically where a trust is formed and buys stock within a, within a company, usually from founders. It's usually founders looking for an exit strategy. So they buy some or all of the shares from the founders. And then the ESOP trust is basically uh, basically owns all the stock. And then all the employees are participants in it. And the reason why we chose an ESOP um, program, we were employee owned, employees were, were investing their own money in the company. And so it was a homegrown, really lucrative, very much a skin in the game and instant gratification because we paid out distributions uh, every quarter. So it felt like a real investment. Um, the issue was, is it just wasn't sustainable. Uh, our founders, we needed to buy out. We were sub S, so we had mm. close to a hundred shareholders. Uh, which, which was going to limit, you know, who could buy and who couldn't. So we decided to go with an ESOP because everybody participates in it. It's not options that are granted to, uh, to the, you know, senior management team or a certain level of employee, everybody gets to participate. And that's really what we wanted to do, uh, is make this as fair and equitable and as broad as possible. So now everybody, our benefits, they, they're beneficiaries of the ESOP trust and they get stock in their, um, in their ESOP accounts every year. And then when they leave the company, they can roll it into a 401k or IRA they can take it if they want and pay a penalty. And if they stay with the company through retirement, there's even more benefits. So it's really an ownership transition model. It's not a retirement benefit. The retirement benefit allows you to maximize that value. The longer you stay with the company, the bigger your ESOP account grows. If you roll it into an IRA, when you leave the company, you continue to, 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 to build your nest egg, but ultimately it's your money. So it's just really the mechanism to make it work, make it fair and equitable, but it truly is an ownership structure. We're transitioning ownership from the founders and all those other shareholders to all employees. Understood, understood. And yeah. so the, the transition from employee ownership to then an ESOP, which is a form of employee mm -hmm. ownership, was based around uh, an investor's perspective for <laughs> room for growth is that a fair uh, statement? It was really for succession. Uh, the founders needed a true succession plan. I came to them in 2013 and I said, look, this is great. It's fantastic to buy into the company. It's, it's generating tremendous return to our shareholders, but who owns this company? Right. You know, what happens if something happens to the two of you? You're getting in close, in, close to your 70s. You know, the machinists who've been buying stock for the last 20 years, you know, they love the idea of ownership and they love the, the investment 
uh, that they've made, but they don't really want to be the owners of this company. We are going to have a problem on our hands. Um, we need to have a much stronger, more sustainable uh, uh, structure in place. And so we talked through a management buyout and we talked through an ESOP and we decided that broad ownership was really what we wanted. And so that's how, that's the mechanism that we've been using to buy out the founders. So that's really what, what it is. They have a legacy that they want to leave behind. Um, they believe in that, that all the employees who built the value of the company should be able to share in the value of the company. We're going to make some employees, many, many employees, very, very wealthy. And that is a great story, right? right? Instead of some private equity guys or, or, you know, a strategic buyout to a publicly traded company, the employees who are building the value get to build real wealth in the company. And so that's what our founders wanted is hundred percent what I believe in. Um, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty unique model, but it was really driven by succession. I, I'd ask you, you know, how this also benefits you for an acquisition standpoint, because it seems like this is a great employee retention strategy, obviously, you know, if you have to stay within the company for, let's say four years to receive the dividends or whatever it is, unless it's a penalty, you, you know, in, in acquisitions, I, feel, I, I guess what I've learned is um, many of the acquisitions fail because a lot of the employees are like, wait, do I, am I going to have a job? Like what, the culture's changing, I'm going to leave. Does this, in your experience, does it seem to keep those employees uh, in the company for longer who, who are the company that's being acquired? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, you know, it's a different model. So it's, it's hard to educate people who aren't familiar with it. We have to educate all new employees because ESOPs are not prevalent, um, although they should be. So there's a lot of education that has to come into, uh, into an acquisition or just onboarding any new employee. And the people who get it really get it. Um, I had one of at, at, at Breadware, the acquisition that we made uh, in 2020, one of uh, my superstars, she's rising within the company. She's, she's so fantastic. She, she told me, thinking about staying with a company for 15, 20 years makes me want to throw up. <laughs> and, you know, she's a millennial. And, you know, that's just not how millennials, Gen Z, it's not how young people think about their careers, right? Especially now, it's I've got to I've got to do all these different things. I've got to go work for these different types of companies to really have a successful career. So, uh, you know, we have to get through the education process and show people that when you stay with the company, it's, it's going to benefit you greatly from a financial perspective, but we can also create the opportunities for you to have career options and try different things. I am, and we've been that way for, for our 43 years of existence where employees really get to go into different roles. So trying to show, show people that you can have this really robust career and do lots of things, not just stay in one boring job for 20 years of your life. Like, you know, our parents used to and, and have this robust career. So once people get it, then it's absolutely a retention tool, but getting people to get it at first is a little bit difficult, especially in this, but I want my money now type mindset. Uh, and, and so that's, that's really where most of the work comes in, but we've been, we've been employees here who've been here for, you know, 35 years and we have very, very low turnover rates. And I do believe that, you know, the ESOP helps with that, but the ESOP is what drives our culture. And, and that's why people don't want to leave. If, if you're an ESOP company and it's a crappy place to work, you're going to have high turnover because it's a crappy place to work. Uh, so it really takes an intentional development of culture um, alongside with the ESOP that I think is what makes us a desirable place to, to stay at for a while. Right. And, and it's ownership, right? And, and that's yeah. one of your values. Like you're, you're, when it comes to that managing expectations, how does this correlation of ownership in the company and ownership of my responsibilities as an employee correlate? Do you see an added return on that when you, when you absolutely, talk about yeah, great question. Um, this is something we spend a lot of time on. And when we were, when, before we did the ESOP and people put skin in the game, it was easier to explain what ownership meant, right? When you were like, okay, this is really truly my money. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing all I can to help the company be successful. When we went to the ESOP, quite frankly, it's an entitlement benefit, right? And you just get a statement every year, but you don't have the, the very tangible, I'm giving money and then I'm getting something back through distributions. Right. 
And so we had to be very intentional about how we tied the ownership thinking and, and the performance of the company and the ownership thinking and, and how you show up every day at your job. So we created what's called the own it mindset, which is our set of principles, um, values, and the behaviors that if exhibited, you will be very successful at Stonehenge. We really lined it out so that people could say, I know what it means to be a great teammate, right? How do I fit into the, to the ecosystem here? I know what it means to be a, a good self leader, right? How I show up, how I'm accountable, how I'm responsible for learning, how I'm responsible for my career. And then the third piece is how all that fits into taking care of our customers. We call it deliver on the stone age assurance promise, right? So you have team, you have self and you have customers. And so we clearly articulated what success looks like in each of those. And we train to it. We have quarterly performance reviews called own it chats that are tied to all of the values um, and principles within the own it mindset. So we're reinforcing it continuously of, you know, this is how you show up as an owner to get this benefit, to get this results as an owner. And and what are some, I guess, experiences that you've had when it comes to ownership and accountability? Where, when has been, when has been a time when something has happened from it with an employee or uh, something's gone wrong in the organization and you've wanted to blame somebody else? Tell me about a time when that's happened and what you've learned from that. Oh, I made a huge mistake. Uh, in my early days. Um, so we had a product go overseas to our biggest dealer distributor in, in the Netherlands. And they said, they, they sent pictures and they said, you sent us used equipment and it looked like the equipment was rusty. And I was like, how did this happen? And I went down to my shop and they denied it. And I was so mad. I was like, you're telling me that our customer is lying to us. You know, these are the pictures that they took, you know, how did you guys make this mistake? And I was really upset. And then I had a, uh, and I, I couldn't believe it. I just thought they were not being accountable and not owning it. And my sales manager at the time, Jeff Hensley, who's just this most remarkable person I know, um, he's still with the company. He's been with us for 30 years. He came and knocked on my door and he said, Hey, I just need to talk to you about what happened. You know, there's nobody here who cares any less than what you do. There's nobody here who wants to do as good of a job for a customer or better than what you do. And you did not give them the benefit of the doubt. You came down there and you blamed them and they are really angry with you. I want you to know that you did some damage. And I realized that I had, instead of being a leader and just taking the brunt of our angry customer and saying, I'm going to do what I can to resolve it and working with my team, I projected what he projected onto me, onto them. So instead of taking it, I blamed them. Mm -hmm. And so immediately I went and I apologized to everyone. And I said, I really screwed this up. I, 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 I own it. I should have never handled it this way, but there are some, there is one person in particular, it took years for him to feel safe. Um, and talking to me about this kind of stuff, it took a long time for him to let that go. And so I vowed never to make that mistake again, to give my team the benefit of the doubt, to bring everybody along on this own it journey, not to blame, always look to solve problems. And, uh, and that was a really tough lesson. It's one that I, I will never forget. Let's expand on that a little bit for someone yeah. listening out there who is gosh, like, I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. I've made a terrible mistake, mistake by blaming others in the company. What advice would you give them to regain their trust? Yeah. Uh, so the first and foremost, you just have to own it. Um, apologize everybody in the eye and ask them what they, what they need from you. Everybody is in uniquely individual, right? So some people on my team, it was like, okay, Hey, no problem. We understand the pressure. Let's resolve this and let it go. But there are some people that hold on to those things. And that's just naturally who we are. Some people let things go. Some people don't, and that doesn't, it's not right or wrong. It just is. And so really making sure that you meet every person where they're at 
and understand some people just aren't going to let it go that easily. And you still have to work to rebuild that trust. But there's no point at the same time, you don't want to rehash it all the time. Right. So it wasn't, I apologize for that. I said, it's not going to happen again. And then we fixed the issue. It was not my team's fault. Uh, uh, It was something that happened during shipping. And then I just had to individually work to rebuild that trust. I had to show that in a high stakes situation that I could keep my cool. I asked a lot of questions before ever making a judgment, at least verbally about what was going on. And so I really had to be very intentional and conscious about how I showed up to earn that trust back. So it wasn't like, okay, it's all fixed. It's done. I've apologized. Now I can go back to being the same way that I always was. I really needed to learn from it. And, and then constantly keep that in the back of my mind of I'm rebuilding this trust. I'm rebuilding this trust. And it's my fault. I broke the trust, not their fault. And so that's how I did it. Finally, like after three years after it happened with this one individual who always was kind of gun shy, I did pull him aside. And I said, Hey, you know, we just got to talk about this and really figure out how to get past it because I'm relying on you and I trust you. And I know that was a mistake. What do you need to do to let it go? And so we just had another little bit of conversation. And then, you know, he said, I can agree to let it go. And so, and I was like, I really appreciate that. But finally, just having that kind of follow-up of saying, you're not getting what you need from me. Let's talk about it. That's how I did it. So it's not fast and it's not easy and you certainly can't like get through it. It's not like something you can just scale. You've really got to take the time to rebuild that trust and know it's on you to rebuild the trust. And what's your philosophy on people that can't really make the change? They can't make the transition. They can't accept. They can't forgive themselves. They can't forgive you as a leader. I mean, what, how do you handle situations like that? Have you had to let anyone go? Tell us about your philosophy on this. Yeah, absolutely. There comes a point where it's toxic and you just have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people, there are always going to be people who aren't on board with what we're doing and that's totally fine. It, again, it's not right or wrong. It just is. And so if someone really can't let go and it's diminishing the quality of, of their work experience, it's holding the company back. Um, then I think it's time to, to be able to, ha- that you should have the conversation to say, maybe this just isn't the right environment for you. You know, I really care about you as a person. And if, if this isn't, if isn't the right place, isn't where you want to be, if you can't forgive me, then let's talk about what that looks like in your role. And maybe it's best if you exit the company, um, you have to have people who are on board with where you're going, people who are holding you back, even if it's granted that you made a mistake, it's not good for that person. It's not good for the organization. So absolutely. I've had to let people go where, um, you know, they've been stuck in the old way of doing things. Didn't want to get on board. Didn't agree with me. Didn't like me. And, you know, while personally it hurts to do that and I never like to do it, you've always, as a leader, got to put the company first and say, this is where we're going. And I need to have, you know, 95% of my team on board. And that 5% is always going to be something that you're working on, um, you know, every day. And, and, you know, what is a company, right? It's just, it's just a bunch of people. And, yeah. you know, the bulk of this conversation, Carrie, has evolved around employees. Yeah. What's like your talent acquisition strategy? I mean, one of the experiences, the only experience I'll share today is something that I think may draw a comparison with your new acquisition and this culture change. And this was in, in when I was working for the women's basketball team or for the women's basketball team in college. There you go. And we had a head coach that uh, got fired and we brought in a new head coach and resistance, right? So much resistance. Everyone did not have a good time. It, it was such a culture shock, complete opposites in terms of personality. A lot of people left. A lot of people got fired. Um, I ended up staying. I wanted to leave, but I ended up staying. It ended up being the best year ever. But our coach focused on talent acquisition in those first two years. Didn't really care about the games. And and that's a strong word, but really didn't really care about the games. Was so focused on recruiting. And we're like, well, she doesn't, what is going on? But of course, you know, four years later, they're in the final four. So 
When it comes to acquiring a new company, how important is talent acquisition to you? Yeah, I mean, it, whether it's acquiring a company or just growing the team, it's so important. Um, you know, the the war for talent, uh, it, it's going to be that. I hate using that. I don't like the war on any things, but that is really how it's going to be. There are going to be, by 2030, the Department of Labor is estimating that there's going to be 6 million workers. We're going to be 6 million workers short in the United States. That's stunning. That is a huge issue. Companies are not going to be able to grow. Now, granted, the bulk of those are going to be in the service industry, but they are certainly in industries like nursing, engineering, and IT technology. Uh, and so to me, I've got to be able to build the best team I can to be able to compete out there. And I'm going to be competing with all the other companies who are looking to grow. So there's, there's a real challenge that I believe that we're facing as a nation. And, and of course, across the country or across the globe as as we have this, this talent shortage and especially talent in the things that are going to um, take us forward into the future. So I look at talent acquisition as uh, an incredibly important part of our of our strategy. We have to hire the very best of the best to be able to get us to where we want to go. And so I completely understand what that coach was doing. You know, it's not about winning right now. It is about winning in the long run. And you cannot do that if you do not have the right people on your team. And it's only going to get harder to attract those right people on your team. One of the things I've noticed with millennials is, where am I going to live? Where am I going to live? I, I want to live in this nice place or, um, you know, I want to be a part of a community. Now, one of the first times we spoke, Carrie, you mentioned uh, Stone Age Tools being the largest employer of Durango. Mm -hmm. How involved in the community are you and have you seen, an, in, by investing into the community, it making an impact in your company? Definitely. I, people want to feel proud of their companies and, uh, companies who reinvest in their communities and back into, um, social innovation, social enterprises that they're passionate about is really important. And so I think that people are proud to work for Stone Age because we put so much effort, not in just to the, to the Durango community, but into all the communities in which we operate in. And so I think it's a, a very important aspect, not just from, you know, how the employee experience is, but also companies need to be part of the bigger solution with all of the problems that face us. And so, you know, I look at it as, as part of our corporate responsibility to give back to our communities and to stand up for the things that we believe in, even if it means that we make a little bit less money. Um, we've got to step up and take care of each other. And we do that through community support and supporting organizations that believe in what we believe in. And Carrie, as you continue to grow, um, how important is it to not become complacent? And what are your thoughts on avoiding uh, be becoming comfortable? Oh, complacency, the complacency trap. I think I just did a podcast on this. Did. <laughs> yes. Uh, so complacency is just, is the killer of all progress. <clears throat> it makes us make bad decisions. It lulls us into thinking that we are doing all the things that we need to, to do to be successful. I think companies drink their own Kool-Aid far too often. And I, I think that that's a huge mistake. Um, being complacent means that you're not growing, you're not evolving. And if you're not evolving, you're dying. And so that's how I look at it. And I am a huge believer in, in pushing yourself, trying new things, stretching your mind, you know, thinking about things that might be outside of your normal belief system and, and trying to expand the way that you view the world and understand how other people might think of it so that you never stay stuck. You know, I, Truly, I, I have banned the words here. We're the experts. When you are the experts, you stop learning. You think I know it all. And, and I want us to always be learners and approach things with the, the mindset of we've tried this before. And even though it didn't work, maybe there's a new way to do it. So always be learning. And I think that drives this whole idea of, of not being complacent and making sure that you are always looking for ways to evolve yourself and your company. 
are you doing anything outside your organization where you're beginning a new sport, a new hobby, a new interest to keep the learning mindset intact? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, especially for a person like me, I, I always like to be stretching myself. So uh, I just recently wrote a book. I have a pandemic book. Um, I've been writing for years. I've been a writer my whole life, but I've never written a book. And so I said, I'm going to do this. And it was really, really hard to do. I, I worked for four or five hours every Saturday to, to write a book. So it'll be coming out next year. Um, I have been doing a lot of speaking, um, sitting on boards, uh, all of that really to be able to continue to get my message out, to refine my message and to help and to do that, to be able to help other leaders and other companies grow and think about their own role as leaders and how to become better, more effective leaders. Uh, so yeah, I'm always pushing myself out that way. So it's like, how am I pushing myself and how am I pushing my company? Carrie, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure getting to learn about your sport, your story. It's been an inspiring one. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? I think a real leader is somebody who has the ability to bring vision to fruition and that bringing that vision through uh, to fruition is about executing strategy. It's about developing and investing in people and it's about understanding your role in all of it as sometimes the motivator sometimes a doer sometimes the visionary understanding that sometimes you're just going to have to flex to be able to bring all of those things together um, being a real leader is the most exhilarating and hardest thing that i've ever done um, you know you have to be comfortable living in ambiguity and so, um, but as long as you know where you want to go and you can inspire people to, to do the work alongside of you, then, then you're going to be a real leader. Well said for Carrie Siggins. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, bring vision to fruition and always folks, keep it real. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real